Hi, thanks for listening to the Arizona Equals Conversation. I'm Jean Woodbury. I'm the Policy and Communications Director for Equality Arizona and the host of this podcast. The Arizona Equals Conversation is an interview podcast where I sit down and talk with queer people from across the state of Arizona about their communities and their experiences in the state. In today's episode, I talk with local artist Lee Call, author of the novel The Angel Room, which you can buy pretty much anywhere you can buy books. Arizona Equals is predicated on the transformative power that stories can hold. And this conversation in particular is a deep dive into that very idea. Talking with Lee about their process of writing and publishing The Angel Room took us through conversations about childhood in Arizona from the 90s to today, reflections on coming to terms with queer identity, and discussions of how to manage the challenges neurodivergence can pose for creative work. As a quick note, starting next week, we'll be releasing each new episode of the show weekly on Wednesdays. And now, I'll let Lee introduce themselves and get the conversation started. Hi, my name is Lee Call, and I'm a professional studio artist and author-illustrator living in Mesa, Arizona. When we met, I think you had just recently had a book launch, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, how long had you been working on the book, and, and how long was the whole process of publishing it leading up to that launch event? Oh, it was quite a journey. So I started writing it in 2010, actually, okay. and it was something that came about just it felt like a fluke the way that it came about because I was in I was in a writing class um at in college and they had a guest speaker come in and she was a local author and she started talking about how awful Twilight was and how much she despised it and I totally related to her on that level so I felt like I felt a certain kinship with her so (laughs) I feel like that's a total 2010 thing bonding over shared (laughs) hatred of Twilight oh I never even thought about that but yeah 20 for sure 2010 2010 thing um I just I had worked in a treatment center for troubled youth and all the girls were reading it and they were all obsessed with it and I just could not stop thinking about how toxic it was and I so I had really strong opinions about Twilight so after that class, I asked her for a minute of her time um, after the rest of the class left because I had a, an open space. And we just sat and talked for about an hour. And she said, you know, I, I feel like you should come to this writing conference that I run. And you should bring uh, three chapters of a novel that you can workshop. And I was like, oh, I guess I got to go home and write three chapters of a novel. <laughs> so I did. I went home and I wrote, I bought a ticket and it was like 10 days away. And I wrote three chapters of this novel and then brought it to the the conference. And when I was there, the pages got passed around to different people inside my workshop mm-hmm. group, of course, because we have to critique each other's work. But then outside the workshop group, different people started coming up to me in the hallways and pulling me into doorways and saying, I read your pages and they really impacted me. And they started telling me these really personal um, stories that they had. 
oh, wow. about things that had happened to them in their life. Yeah. So it felt like the pages, just even that little bit of the book that I had started to write was moving something in people that had been trapped or maybe in a kind of a trauma cycle for right, a while. Yeah. And the, the pages felt important when people were strangers were coming up and talking to me about them and telling me this, this is changing me already, you know? And so that was kind of, it felt almost like a moral imperative to finish the book. Yeah. Even though it was difficult to write it because it was a kind of a combination of processing my own story and, um, different people that I had talked to over the years Mm -hmm. who had trauma stories and, and also neurodivergence gets in the way of projects, you know, so you start something and then you're like, uh, I can't finish it. And so it took me four years to finish the manuscript and then I queried it. Um, and I had talked to agents and editors about it. It had been passed to uh, different people. During the writing process? Mm, during Yeah, during the writing process. Because I went to the conference every year after that. Oh, that's great. And I brought it with me. And um, and I, I had sit-downs with agents and editors about it. And they all told me, it's too dark. It's too dark. We cannot sell this. It's not uh, yeah. marketable. It's just too dark. And so after I finished it, I queried it. I sent it out to about... 40 agents and I got all nose back just like it's too dark this isn't for me you know so I said oh okay oh well I guess it's not meant to be so I just put it away and then it was that was 2015 so then I worked on other things and just went on with life and said oh well I guess it's not my my journey to publish a novel you know and then last year uh, had a few people who were in the industry, writers and librarians and booksellers, oh, come to me and say, you remember that book you were working on a while back? It feels like the industry's changed a little bit, so it might actually be time for that book. And it was around that time that I had actually brought the book out and was showing it to my friend. Um, we had been changing, exchanging short stories back and forth. And I said, oh, you should, if you like what I write, you should read this book that I wrote. It's it's a bananas project and it took me years to write and she said yeah you should show it to me so I I did and she said this is wow this is really good this is an actual book and so I started querying it again I did a revision and I started querying it again and I sent it out about a hundred queries and uh, the majority of them were either straight no's or uh, no replies yeah. I've, I've actually still been getting replies to queries that I sent out in September. So oh, wow. almost a year later, I'm starting to get more replies saying, oh, thanks for waiting so patiently. Yeah. But this isn't this isn't for me. It's, it's a little, so much rejection, like just so a much rejection. <laughs> it's so much rejection. It's so hard. Uh, it's so rough on your heart as an artist to yeah. have people say no. And, you know, they're coming from a place of commercial viability. Right. And I don't write things that are commercially viable, really. I write things that are complex and human and mm-hmm. don't really fit neatly into certain genres. And so I feel like I write things for one person, <laughs> you know, and that one person is here and there. And I feel like the audience is much wider for it than they would think it is. But I, I would agree. 
Um, I have a lot of follow-up questions, but I think we should probably talk just a little bit about what the book is Mm -hmm. and um, maybe who that one reader is that you wrote it for. So the book is about a a 15-year-old queer kid who lives in Phoenix, who's being raised in a fundamentalist Christian home and with authoritarian parents and they're they start out that their journey their queer journey in the book is a exploration and discovery journey so they start out the book as she her and they end the book as they them and they they have their trauma being manifested as this little snarky demon that follows them around everywhere and is always just like talking in their ear about and commenting on everything. So it's really a metaphor for how um, trauma manifests itself in our lives and how these voices that these tapes that we have running can hold us back from what we really want. So it's basically a coming of age uh, about dealing with these really heavy issues and coming to an understanding of your your true self, your authentic self, and how to be brave enough to share your story with someone. The, the crux of her problem is that she has this dark secret that she's carrying and she can't tell anyone. And she she's she's too scared. And so the her journey is really about finding the the courage and the ability to do that. So she meets some friends who become very dear to her, and one of them is a lesbian girl, and she's never had any queer friends before that she mm-hmm. knows of, you know. Yeah. And another another friend is a boy with horses, and she's obsessed with horses. Yeah, <laughs> I like the horse girl element. Yeah. So it's funny because I had one one agent that I wanted to write to. She had everything on her list. It was like it fit everything that she wanted. She said, I want a dark, gritty thing. I want speculative fiction. I want supernatural twist. You know, she's naming all these things. Oh, I was yeah. like, oh, it's so perfect. And then at the end, it said in all caps, no horses. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, dear. Because <laughs> it's not necessarily, it's not a horse book because it's not, have you read it? Yeah. Okay. I think the horses, like, they're totally essential to the story. Right. But at the same time, it could be something else. It doesn't really have to be horses necessarily. Right. It's not. The horses aren't central to the thematic material, I would say. Yeah. I mean, it's just the thing that makes her gives her joy, the thing that makes her heart sing. And it's something where, you know, in those scenes with like the stables or riding the horses um, like through, like, I don't know, on baseline or whatever. Yeah. Uh, it's one of the first moments in the book where I think the the main character has this moment of, well, for one, not seeing the the little character creep, right, and then also having a moment where a certain element of dysphoria that, like, up to that point in the book is really kind of unplaced, right. That dysphoria isn't there, right, because of this physical activity, yes. and I think it being horses, and so it's a physical activity, and you're connecting with like these massive shapes physical shapes of the horses it is really like spiritually important to that part of the story that pure animal energy i think is really important yeah i would it's funny though because (laughs) 
when I ran across that no no horses, I was like, well, that just takes me out of the running for that agent. And then I thought, is this is this a horse book? <laughs> it was the first time I had thought maybe this is a horse book, but I can't I can't see it like on the shelf with other horse books. You know, the ones that have like a horse on the cover with the girl holding the bridle, you know, or right. like petting the horse's face or it's whatever. It's not that kind of book. It's important to her. It's vital to her in her in her story, but it's funny because people think, oh, there are horses in it, then they think it's a certain kind of book, you know. Right. I wouldn't say it's a horse book, but <laughs> the horses are important. <laughs> well, and I imagine that's a problem with the commercial viability of the book in right. a lot of ways. They see, okay, there's trauma. Right. There's a specific kind of trauma. Right. That puts it into one category. Mm-hmm. Or there's speculative elements. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that puts it immediately into a whole separate category right. and then there's a whole queer journey right. and it's it's young adults but i don't know that i would call it a ya book right and so all of those things are kind of pushing against the limits of what an agent is going to automatically think of as yeah marketable right exactly um, exactly although really i i do like the way you've decided to sell the book from what i've seen i think that's a really cool so i bought it at a little coffee shop called uh, Brick Road Coffee in Tempe. Um, how did that connection come about? So I go to the art store that's there, Jerry's uh, Art Aroma. Oh, yeah, Jerry's. Yeah, because I'm a professional studio artist. And so I go in there all the time. And that little space where Brick Road is has gone through some transitions. I've, they've had a few different things in there. Um, but the last few times it's been a coffee shop. And so mm-hmm. we were there and I said, oh, we should get coffee. And then I was like, oh, wait, it's not the coffee shop that it was before well it's still coffee so let's go in you know yeah so we go in and I was just like wait wait what this is so cute wait is this queer oh my god it's queer and I was so excited and they had they were still pretty new you know um and they had the lending library was the thing that drew me in was that they had this lending library for queer books and it was mostly young adult yeah I, I love that little shelf over in the corner it's yeah. just so inviting yeah and their their vision for it is that kids who feel uncomfortable asking for queer literature in a bookstore or in a library or at school um, can walk in there and surreptitiously just go over and look at what they want and put it in their backpack and take it home and nobody will ask them to bring it back nobody will ask them what are you you know what are you reading or look yeah. at them awry it's just like a very safe place and that's the thing that just drew me in to brick road and so being the kind of person that i am small business owner myself i you know talk to the to the owners I, yeah. I said oh this is such a great space it's so beautiful like your brand is so well established i know exactly what you're going for you know and then we became friends so they both Gabe and Jesse, the co-owners of mm-hmm. Brick Road, they love books and writers. And so after we became friends, you know, I, I went to Gabe back in June or maybe May. And I said, oh, hi, can I have my book launch at your at your place? <laughs> <laughs> and Gabe said, oh, yeah, totally. Just talk to Jesse about it. And so we set up the book launch there and they bought the stock to to sell the of the books and we had a big party and it was super fun that's amazing yeah Uh, i think one of the things i'm really curious about is that final stage of getting the book to print after rejection and rejection even setting it aside 
Yeah, so I actually got a few agents asking for a full. They asked for a full manuscript, and that's really exciting when that happens. I had a couple ask in September, and they've never gotten back to me still. They probably will, like, next year <laughs> or not. And then I had a couple at the beginning of the year ask for a full. And I sent the last full that I sent, it was in January, and I messaged, I called my friend, and I said, I've decided that... I'm going to move forward with self-publishing. Even, I think I've come to the point that even if this last agent comes to me and says, oh my gosh, because it was like my dream agent. Um, They were non-binary, they're in Nevada, so they're in the desert, and they liked all the same things that I did, and I just got this vibe from them. I was like, oh, that would be so cool. And I said, you know, even even if they came to me and said, I want to publish your book, or I want to represent your book and try to find a publisher for it, I would say, I think I'm over this need to be traditionally published. I don't think I'm gonna I don't think I'm gonna accept. And she said, Wow, that's a really big deal. I said, Yeah, I think I just really want to have creative control. Mm-hmm. This was the thing that I decided. Like if I'm not gonna if the gatekeepers aren't gonna let me in, then I'm just gonna go for it, you know? So I had to do so much research and it's been really rough because I have long haul COVID and the brain fog is unreal and my productive hours have really gone way down. So the, the process felt really slow, even though it happened pretty fast, I guess, because I found a formatter, I sent the manuscript over, I had beta readers reading it and I had gone through a few um, rounds of revisions and then I found an audiobook narrator and she got the manuscript and started working on it. It was in February and then I figured out how to set everything up just by reading articles and watching YouTube tutorials and got it printed through Ingram Spark, which is where the booksellers and libraries get their books from. So you can go into like my book is listed on IndieBound, so you could go to IndieBound and find an independent library near you, wherever mm-hmm. you are, and order my book through them. Or it's up sitting on a table at Barnes & Noble and Chandler. So that's really fun. Yeah, it's it's really astounding, honestly. I think that kind of decision point of saying, I'm not going to bend this anymore to fit yes. their vision I'm going to take on all of this work Ugh. to do what various different companies would be doing for right, me in, right. in a traditional publishing thing. That's a decision that I've seen made, I think, again and again by non-binary and trans writers, um, like with Topside Press, for example. I don't know if you're familiar with them, mm-hmm. but it's a long tradition of saying there isn't room for us. Right. Let's just do this ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I think one of my questions, I know you have a Patreon. Mm -hmm. You mentioned beta readers. Mm -hmm. Did you feel like when you made that decision, did you you have some kind of confidence in saying there are the people out there who are going to receive this book if I publish it myself? I think my experience at the conference was the thing that made me feel like there are readers out there who would would benefit from it, that there is a readership uh, willing to look at it, even though it's cross-genre and not commercial and kind of weird. I felt like the response that I received made such an impact on me that I, I knew there are people out there who are holding their stories really close, 
who will, will, will really relate to Eleanor's journey yeah. in the book. And I think that that's um, one of the really profound parts of the book is the same thing that you're seeing or we're seeing, like even with those first few chapters of people getting to the point of being able to open up is really the trajectory of Eleanor's arc in, in multiple ways with gender and, and sexuality and trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, I really enjoyed all the relationships, how that developed, not just like with the friends that she could open up to, uh, but with the the person who works at the, the convenience store. 7-Eleven. Yeah, the 7-Eleven. <laughs> God, that was so real. The the slushies Mm -hmm. um and then also with the the little demon creep Mm -hmm. that relationship i felt like could have been a lot more one-dimensional than it was and i was really at some points i felt some kind of sympathy for creep Mm -hmm. the, the demon um just seeing which parts of creep are eleanor and which parts are the trauma and which parts are the source of the trauma. Um, I thought it was just so much, I mean, it was just great nuance and, and I, I really appreciated that about the book. I want to roll back in Thank time you. to that conference that you've okay. now gone to. I think you, you keep yeah, going I, to it. I haven't gone to it since, since I stopped querying. I think the last time I went was 2016. Okay. So I haven't gone to it for a few years. So was that local in in Arizona? No, it or? was actually in Utah. So okay. I went to I went to art school in Utah. Okay. After a series of devastating life transitions, I found myself in Utah and I had to kind of make some life choices and I decided to take some classes when I was there and then that kind of morphed into an art degree. And that's the foundation of like your fine art um, career now? Well, I started, my studio art career started actually in 2001. Okay. I started painting professionally in 2001. Just my neighbor wanted some paintings done and I said, sure. And so I, my first commission was just like four paintings for my neighbor. Oh, I love that. And then she hooked me up with a bunch of her contacts. Um, and so I went from there. I was self-taught up to that okay. point. And so then when I was in when I was in Utah, I had stopped painting. I wasn't really working on art at all. And someone suggested that I should start to get back into it, into my business. So I did I got my bachelor's of fine art in illustration. Okay. And I was a studio artist for the twelve years before I got my degree and sold in galleries and stuff like that. But it was really good for me to get a degree in art because I didn't know what I was doing. I just, I was self-taught. So I was just kind of learning as I went, I guess, trial and error kind of thing for over a decade. And once you, once you start taking classes from, well, you know, you have an education. Once you start taking classes from people who know what they're doing, then your education and your skills just rapidly, you know, yeah, increase. So it was the right thing to do, even though it was very expensive. Yeah. <laughs> And then, so after you got your degree in Utah, mm-hmm. did you move back to Arizona? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I graduated and then I came back. That was 2013. I came back here. I grew up here. So, so that was the reason you came back? Just 
Um, yeah. Well, my kids lived here. Okay. So w- w- there was a divorce and all these horrible things. And then my kids were living here with their dad. So okay. I came back to be with them. That makes sense. Yeah. I'm interested in that kind of coming in and out of Arizona and coming in and out of writing the novel because when I was reading it, I kept thinking at different points, when is this set? At the beginning of the book, I thought, okay, this could be set when I was a kid. It could be set right. now. And as I kept reading, I was just paying attention to what references there are. Right. And I realized I think it's set within the past few years. Yeah. Um, but when you started writing it, it was 12 years ago. Right. How did you approach that? Did you always just think it should be current to when it's published and then you wanted to refresh that? Yeah. So when I when I wrote it, I was writing it about it was it was me and my brother. Like mm-hmm. these characters were based on me and my my little brother. So it was the house that we lived in in the 90s, you know, in in Phoenix. Yeah. And it was the little video store that we would walk down to to get the VHS of The Last Unicorn. Yeah. And it was the 7-Eleven that we would walk to, you know. And so when, you know, when I first wrote it, there weren't any cell phones in the book because I was just, I was just stream of consciousness writing, you know. Right. And so when I started to revise it and, and to edit it for con- more contemporary sensibilities, mm-hmm. um, I did have to go back and inject those more modern references. Yeah. But I know, I mean, I, I feel like Eleanor not having a phone um, was, was problematic because everybody has phone now. Right. And, but I do know that there are kids who don't because their parents are super strict or their parents are like, weirdly religious or whatever it is so I figured it would be it would be okay if she was one of those weird kids yeah who didn't have a phone well and then that introduced and I think a really useful part of the story Mm -hmm. in terms of how she does get a phone right yeah right but yeah initially I actually wondered if I should set it in the 90s you know because it was definitely it there's definitely like a, a retro kind of vibe to it Definitely. Where the kids are just like hanging out and doing non-technological stuff a lot of the time. Yeah. But I, you know, my brother, and he is re- he is weirdly retro sometimes. Still, like he went and bought a typewriter, like an actual <laughs> typewriter. So me putting in there that Joshua was like, yeah, I'm gonna get an NES at a garage sale for five bucks with a bunch of these like trashy games. Yeah. Um, that are broken half the time. It didn't feel too far off the mark for what would have really right. happened. You know. And I, I think it just is true that people in the present aren't only using things exactly from the present moment, right? right? So it felt genuine, but there was also something about, you know, I don't get to read a lot of books that are set in Phoenix, Mm -hmm. especially not in the parts of Phoenix where I've grown up. Right. And there was a part of it that I was just like, this is a timeless Phoenix childhood experience. I wanted it to be timeless. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder, you have kids here in Arizona. You were a kid in Arizona. Yes. Do you think there is a timelessness to it or what have you seen change between like your experience and and your kids experience? I feel like there is a, there can be a timelessness to it. One thing that I, one thing that I realized I was telling my brother this summer, we were outside and I was like, it's so 
hot. It is so hot. How did we survive playing outside when it was so hot like this? Yeah. And then I realized, you know, 30 years ago, it wasn't this hot. It wasn't 118 degrees two weeks in a row every single day. Right. It wasn't. And so that is actually something that impedes children being outside every day now yeah. is the excessive smothering heat, you know. So I feel like there are some things that inhibit kids from, from doing old-fashioned stuff. But <clears throat> my kids, and maybe it's because of the way that I am, just me, myself, I definitely encouraged them to go outside. Go outside and play. Go outside and build things. Go play with the dog. Go, you know, do the fun things. And they were very outdoorsy, active kids, you know, and they, yeah. would, they would spend a lot of time outside. So the... Joshua is based on my little brother, but then the character of Sam is based on one of my children. Okay. So I definitely pulled things that my kids would do um, from as I was writing it, as this, those things were happening. So it wasn't just my memories, because, you know, memories can be foggy and unreliable right. as to what you remember kids doing. But a lot of the things that they were doing were things that my kids were actually doing right then. So that was that was something I felt I felt good about that kids are still doing these kinds of things. Yeah. Plus, kids look at old tech old technology like NES, like it's strange esoterica, you know. <sighs> it's just Absolutely. like these mysterious <laughs> artifacts. <laughs> Let's see how these work, you know. I had a cousin, a younger cousin, come to me when he was a kid, and he said, "Oh, I found this really weird computer," and he was talking about a typewriter. And it was like you would press the you would press the key, and the letter would suddenly be on the paper. And I was like. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> get this kid a Walkman, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, gosh, that's great. Did you like it? I did. I loved the book. Um, I think something I told you is that I really appreciated the cancer narrative mm -hmm. in the book. Uh, that's something I have some personal experience with, not with a family member, right. but um, inside of a church setting. And so the way you depicted, here's how these people lean on their faith and here's how Eleanor and Joshua as kids process that. Mm -hmm. um, I felt was just um, something that's pretty rare to see. Um, obviously, people write about these experiences, but that's a really unique thing. Um, I was going to ask you where you went to college, but then you brought up you went to college in Utah. Yeah, Utah um, Valley University. Yeah. Because BYU was too Mormon. Yeah. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> I was raised Mormon. Okay. Yeah. So that's something I, I wondered about, um, being raised Mormon here in Arizona and then making the decision to move to Utah and go to college but not go to BYU. It's right. definitely an interesting series of layers. Right. So when I went to Utah, I was I was suicidal and I was I had decided that I was just gonna be done. And it was not my, it wasn't a conscious decision to like move to Utah. What happened was I was there. My ex had taken the kids. I was really, really ill. I was super ill. And I, I was just, it was Christmas, it was Christmas time. My birthday's on the 20th of December and it all happened around that time. And it was Christmas and it was just terrible. And I was alone in the house and it was in, I was in Texas and um, my mom called me and she's like, hi, can you please come to Utah for Christmas? That's where her family's from. Okay. And I was like, no. 
and she said, please, please, please. And she was crying on the phone. Like she knew that things were bad, you know, she said, just, just come and stay with my family just for a couple weeks. Just come to Utah for Christmas. And I was like, fine. (laughs) I was so, I was so sick. Um, and so I, they, you know, they bought me the ticket and drove, you know, somebody drove me to the airport and I was just like in this medicated fog and I didn't, it's all still a complete blur. And I ended up in Utah and they say, people will tell you, people who are native to Utah, people who have moved to Utah, they'll tell you Utah's a black hole. You move there, just you go there for a second and you stay for 15 years. Like, I don't know why that is, but (laughs) it was true for me too. It wasn't 15 years, but I moved there in 2007 and I left in 2013. Yeah. And not really with the intention initially to be there for Mm -mm. that long. No, no. Was that a period of your life where you felt like you could refresh and restart? And then when you came back here, you were on a different page? Yeah, it was, it wasn't a conscious refresh. It was kind of like a hard reboot. Oh yeah. Like a forced reboot, right? Um, I was in the, I was in and out of the psychiatric treatment center and I was dealing with a lot of um, suicidal ideation and mental illness and it was just super rough and I was really dysfunctional and I had people taking care of me you know and I had kids they were just in another state because I couldn't I couldn't take care of myself you know and so yeah I had to like claw my way back to a place of mental stability Uh, and and so when I yeah when I moved here it was it was hard because it all started here and like getting married and it was it wasn't a good relationship and and so it was hard moving back here because of triggers and things like that but I think the biggest the biggest impetus for change was when my 17 year old she's 23 now came to me and said that um she was gay and Uh, she came out to me and she she said I was I don't know why I was afraid to tell you because I was like I kind of knew that already (laughs) but thanks for telling me you know um but it was then that I that I took a hard look at the belief system that I was raised with because it's not a queer friendly organization and it's not something that I felt I could morally and objectively cling to and be also be supportive and show my full um, love and trying to think of another word for support but that's that's really it for my kid yeah because I think that that that's the height of hypocrisy to belong to uh, what I now consider a hate group <laughs> and have um, a gay kid and say, yeah, the gays are great when you belong to a group like that. doesn't make sense. Yeah, I think it's interesting to be a queer person and have your kid come out to you and be in that setting. And I think, you know, clearly you went through a long period of your life. And then when your kid came out, you said, this is not okay. Right. But for a long time you were in that. Yes. And you were queer. Yes. And how, how did you process that? That, okay. That's, that's really, it's so bananas. So when you're raised Mormon, 
um, there's no, so there is actual doctrine that, that says, you know, if you feel like you have homosexual feelings, then you stay valiant and celibate and true through your mortal life. Then when you die, your homosexual feelings will be taken away from you and you'll be magically made heterosexual or you're like a secret heterosexual your whole life, right? And also that like trans people aren't real because we're all just as God made us and God doesn't make mistakes and God only makes heterosexual people. So that's like on the books doctrine, right? Yeah. And so if you... Well, from my, from my experience was that if if you're leaning so hard into being what your parents expect you to be and doing what your parents expect you to do and being the person that's going to get to heaven or whatever in the end, you can't take a real hard look at the fact that you're attracted to girls when you're, you know, assigned female at birth when you're presenting as a girl or when everybody sees you as a girl. Yeah. You can't say, oh, I like girls. Oh, I was in love with all my best friends when I was a kid. And and I liked the boys, too. And it was something I couldn't I couldn't even allow the possibility of this being a thing, you know. So it wasn't even until I was married for the second time that I started really like looking at these things in myself and yeah. saying, huh, what is this? And, and being on really honest, like once I left the church, I was able to actually start to deprogram because that programming is so efficient and it's so invasive. It just goes into every pore of your, of your body and your, your entire self. And it takes a while to get it all out. So yeah. I'm, you know, a baby queer, I guess. At 45. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. It's I all, mean, there's no timeline that there isn't, and anyone tells you to follow, right? Right. So. There isn't. But it, there is a lot of regret that goes, and grief, right. that goes into that. Because you look back and think about all of the things that could have been, you know, or the yeah. person that you could have been if those those things had been allowed in your existence. Yeah. Do you have ways that you process that grief now? Uh, through art. <laughs> I love that. Well, yeah, you know, I wrote a whole book about it. That's right, yeah. <laughs> so, like, every everything that Eleanor gets to do in that book are things that I wish I would have been able to do. And, and so I think that's part, like, processing part of that to say, I, like, there's an alternate universe somewhere. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm a multiverse believer. There's an alternate universe somewhere where there's a version of me who's, who didn't have all of these trauma things hampering them yeah. was able to move into this space much earlier in life, you know, and, and things were easier that way. But I, I can take some comfort in that and say there's somebody out there, there's a Lee out there that's like living their best, most obstacle-free existence on this path. Um, I think processing the grief is important. There's a lot of anger that comes with it too. When you're yeah. raised fundamentalist Christian, they tell you, you know, anger's of the devil. You shouldn't get angry. Contention is of the devil. Mm -hmm. So if you start to raise your voice or express any kind of anger, people will just shut down and stop listening. It's, mm -hmm. it's a cult tactic. It's a thought process, thought-stopping tactic. Um, so I think accessing your anger is really important in moving into understanding yourself and these things and what's been taken away from you. 
so that you can become more actively assertive for yeah. your own safety, for your boundaries, and for the safety and boundaries of the people that you love, the people around you, and for your community. That's something now I'm realizing is actually a huge theme of your book. Mm -hmm. There's these moments of anger where Al or Eleanor really asserts um, either in a defensive way or in a confrontational way with uh, their parents. And those are moments where things really start to change mm -hmm. in, in their relationship to various characters in, in those different circumstances. Mm -hmm. Um, which isn't something I had thought about because I think I have some of those same feelings about anger. Like, let's not lean into anger, right? right? But actually, sometimes it is exactly what, what you need to be feeling. I think it's vital for healing mm -hmm. for people, especially who have been taught to not feel their feelings in general and to not allow themselves to become riled up in any way other than religious ecstasy. Oh, yeah. You know? Because anger is the thing that tells you when your boundaries are being crossed. Yeah. And if you can't access it, you never know when your boundaries are being crossed until you have no boundaries at all. And all you, all you are is what people tell you that you are. And your true self gets lost. Yeah. So I think anger is really important. Yeah. I think something you mentioned earlier was moving through a like decade-long project uh, with, you know, as a neurodiverse person, um, <laughs> listening to you talk about trying to be the perfect person, trying yeah. to be the perfect child, deciding whether you can even let yourself be angry. I know some of that can come from religion, but also from my own experience, that's, sometimes that's just hard to separate also from neurodiversity and religion and being queer and neurodiverse. Yeah. Is that an experience you have too? Yeah, it's all tied up and tangled up together, you know? Yeah. Like, I've I've started to realize because um, it's more and more in the public milieu, people talking about it, about the way that neurodivergency can paralyze you and the way that it can prevent you from accomplishing things that you actually really want. Mm -hmm. And there were times with this book that I would just I would get so burnt out working on it and it's just one book like why was it so hard why it took me four years to finish it I know people now who write a book in 30 days it's bananas to think about that but but when I'm when I'm being honest with myself there were things that were chemical things uh, mental health things that were preventing me from moving forward with it and the timeline that it happened was the only way that it could have I mean right now it's I was just telling my friend yesterday I need some accountability for pages because I'm working on the sequel to the book oh exciting. and yeah and I'm in I'm in that task paralysis frozen state mm -hmm. at the moment well not now not today but I was yesterday <laughs> and I said I need some accountability for pages because I, I need to hack my neurodivergency. So I have this thing where I can't do it until it's urgent. I can't, I right. can't do it. I can't accomplish it until it's urgent. And I need, so I need to fabricate urgency. Can you help me fabricate urgency? She's like, yeah, but she was, <laughs> she was one of my professors when I was in college. Oh, that's fantastic. Like best friends now. And so, 
I was like, okay, I'm going to imagine you with your red pen, like getting ready to grade this thing that's due at 11.59 at Mm -hmm. night. And she's like, okay. And I said, but don't read it because it's a rough draft. And if I think people are going to read it, then I can't write it. Right. But so I'm sending her pages every day on this rough draft so that I have a deadline. And that's, that's a one way that I've learned I can hack my neurodivergency to push myself forward. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. Do you find that there are like online communities that also help to connect on some of these things? Definitely. I actually belong to a group called Neurodivergent Cleaning Crew. <laughs> oh. <laughs> because oh, wow. there's a lot of shame that can come along with issues that arise because of neurodivergency. Absolutely. Like the tendency to create things called doom boxes for people who have ADHD. They'll just put stuff in a pile or in a box or in a bag in, uh, and it goes yeah. into a corner or on a table or whatever. And then it just disappears from sight. You don't see it anymore. It's actually mm-hmm. invisible to you. And there's a lot of shame that comes up, especially being raised in a religion that tells you like, as a woman, your role is to be a wife and mother and keep house and have all these babies and you have to do it perfectly, yeah. you know? And so when you have things that you can't seem to get a handle on, in your physical space, having communities like this where people, they, they'll get online and they'll say, look what I did today. And they'll talk about how they approached a task and how they were able to accomplish it, even with the challenges of neurodivergency. I think that can be really helpful. And body doubling is another thing that I learned about where um, it's easier to accomplish something when you have somebody working beside you, even if you're not doing the same thing you're actually working concurrently that can really help you just motivate. Yeah, for sure. Community is definitely important. I really wanted to set up an opportunity for you to plug your Patreon. Okay. Because you're creating online community with that. Right. And I think I've seen a lot of like independently published authors and independent creators use their Patreon to really be the foundation of that business. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about that? So... Patreon, I love I love the idea of Patreon. You know, artists used to have patrons back in the day, but it would only be like one super rich guy mm-hmm. or one super rich family. And now it's like a bunch of people who aren't rich, but they'll donate a dollar or not donate, but they'll give a dollar to have access to your content every month. And the cool thing that's come out of my Patreon is we have this cute little Facebook family. It's like a little Facebook group that's just the patron members of my group. Uh, of my Patreon, and they post all day memes and little articles and things that they're doing with their day, and they support each other, like people who have had to move or who are going through a hard time. The patrons will send money to each other, and they they've actually like become friends with each other through the group. Um, people that didn't know each other before joined my Patreon and now they're best friends and they talk to each other every oh, day. Wow. It's really, it's really cool to be able to facilitate yeah. that. That's something that I've learned over the years is something that I really enjoy is being able to um, help people connect um, and like minds to be able to find each other. So the Patreon is something where I put up short stories, artwork, my professional work, my illustration work. Uh, coloring pages, and then I'll send out I'll send out little nifty in the mail things every once in a while. That's so cool. Yeah, I, I love how 
that can bring people together in ways that aren't even always just about your work, right. but you give them the anchor for that. Yeah. Um, thanks for recording this with me today. You're welcome. And thanks to all of you for listening to my conversation with Lee Call. If you'd like to listen to past episodes of the show, you can find the entire archive at equalityarizona.org stories. And if you'd like to be a guest on a future episode of the podcast, you can sign up on that same page. Equality Arizona is a policy and politics-focused LGBTQ rights organization focused on building the political power of LGBTQ Arizonans. If you'd like to find more ways to get involved with our work, visit our website, equalityarizona.org, where you can find events and volunteer opportunities, policy analysis, and our voter guide.